Welcome to Everyday Trailblazers. I'm your host, Galen Pogue. In these interviews, I ask pioneering professional do-gooders to share their work and what they think it might take to turn their big vision for positive change into a transformational movement that makes all of our lives better. Today on the podcast, I interview Devin Gleason, a man who is changing our culture of numbness by helping people get back in touch with the power of their feelings and what they are willing to take a stand for. Devin works with groups of people and individuals around the world to help them discover and unlock their human potential using processes and contexts from a massive field of research called possibility management. He also facilitates rage and fear clubs and a type of underworld work called gremlin transformation. Devin's courage to develop himself and help others is inspiring, and I am so excited to introduce him to my listeners. Devin, welcome to Everyday Trailblazers. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Galen. It's great to be here. Devin, can you tell my listeners, what is your work about? What is the positive change that you are promoting and that you're working with? I work in a massive field of research called possibility management. And possibility management starts from a question about responsibility. It's something like, if I were to inhabit the story in my life that I am radically responsible for not just my life and not just the lives of the people around me, but really everything, that somehow I can assume a type of radical, completely unreasonable amount of responsibility how would things in my world change? And from this question, over the last 40 or so years, this research of possibility management has emerged as a kind of gateway to unlocking human potential, unlocking what is really possible for a human being to create, to be, to inhabit and make in the world. So if you imagine responsibility as a spectrum from, let's say, 0% responsibility to 100% responsibility, there would be different sort of brackets on the spectrum. And one bracket would be, let's call it like child-level responsibility. I make a mess, somebody else cleans it up. And there's other levels of possible responsibility. Another level would be something like adult level responsibility. I make a mess and I clean it up. And I'm not just talking about like papers all over the place, but messes in relating or messes in money stuff or messes in your personal life. So for most people, this would be as far as we go in terms of what one could be responsible for. And I think about things like climate change. We've been taking oil out of the ground for a very long time. Yeah, nobody's taking responsibility for cleaning that up, right? (laughs) Well, right. So who does the responsibility for climate change get shouldered off to? Mostly the future. The future generations will take care of it. I got to say, my immediate response to taking responsibility for everything is, well, that's impossible. (laughs) right? Does possibility management talk about how it is possible or does it clarify? Because how could you possibly take responsibility for everything? Exactly. It's completely unreasonable. It's a totally unreasonable question. And in a way, there's no way to do it. And in a way, that's what makes the question worthwhile is it's like, what is truly possible for a human being. If you took all the caps off, if you took all reasonableness off, and suddenly there's a whole field of questions. There are lots of different maps and ideas and ways of being or interacting with the world that can open up that aren't possible. If you're saying this is a reasonable amount of responsibility for a human being to take. So it starts in a world of unreasonableness. And the idea would not be to enter a space where you're doing life perfectly, responsibly, 
And does that mean I do everything I can about everything that I see? No, but I also am conscious. I'm conscious of my relationship to a particular problem that there's something I could do about it. And I may not do that thing about it, but it's also not being blind about it either. How- it sounds big. Possibility management sounds pretty big. <laughs> yes, it's a totally expansive world. And I think just even sitting with this question of if I looked at my life as though everything that has ever occurred in my life, I am somehow responsible for, I am at cause or at source for, and I found out how that worked. And responsibility would not be about fault or blame or anything, but it would be about somehow not being a victim of life or the world. I guess what I'm trying to get across here is that there would be certain questions that would really be different. So for instance, instead of asking who did this to me, or how did I end up like this? Or why is the government like this? Or why are my parents like this or whatever? The whole thing turns back into how did I create this? How am I ongoingly creating messes in my life or or so it, it all points back to empowering yourself because you look at what's your part and what are you creating? Yes, totally. Obviously, the value of empowerment is really important to you. Yes, definitely. Hugely important. Why is that? Just want to ask the question. <laughs> like, what did possibility management when it came into your life... What did that mean to you for that to come into your life? And why did you get fascinated with it? Yeah, thanks for asking. For me, it started with knowing I was looking for something. It's kind of a vague thing to say, but really since I was a young adult, I was fascinated with spirituality and reading Herman Hesse and trying to find, I don't know, some kind of meaning or magic or something like that in the world. And at times that kind of longing would fall asleep in me. And then at other times it would be woken up. And it was when I was in my late twenties living in Seattle through this bunch of coincidences, I found my way into this community, the star community, Seattle, you know, this place. Yes, but my listeners don't. So what is the star community? Just briefly, (laughs) the star community in Seattle when it first started was just one house is kind of what's called an intentional community. So a group of people who whatever, maybe share values all living together. And when I found the star community, it was this one house in Seattle, these people would come together. They were interested in personal development. They were interested in permaculture. They were interested in sex positivity, like really a range of sort of stuff on the edge of mainstream culture, exploring these things in a living environment together. So I found my way to the star community and found my way to a particular process they had that was adapted from another community. It was called the star forum. And it was this facilitated process where people would stand up and walk around and show their feelings. And then facilitator would walk them through whatever they were going through. And I remember the first time I went to this, I was like seeing people feel stuff, really feel stuff, like crying, yelling, saying crazy things that normal people wouldn't say if they just walked into Starbucks. They were coming into these rooms and saying this stuff. And I was just like, what is this? I was really, really fascinated and terrified. I did not want to get up and walk around this group. So I came to maybe five or six of these forums over the course of a couple of months And then eventually one of the facilitators asked me like, so you keep coming here, you never stand up, why? And I didn't have an answer. And so that day I stood up and and so I'm walking around this group and this is the thing you walk around the circle and I started to just talk and I can't remember the specifics. It's something, I don't know, maybe about my dad or some something where I was, I was having a conflict with someone and the facilitator just interrupted me and said, Devin, keep walking, keep talking, but put your hands around your neck. 
And so I was like, whatever. So I did that and I kept walking and he's, and then he stopped me again. He's like, no, Devin, really for real strangle yourself and then keep talking. And so I gave it a try and it was, it was like, boom, something shifted in me. And I just, for the first time in maybe five years, just collapsed into weeping, really standing there, just weeping in front of these pretty much strangers. And the facilitator got on the floor and just crawled up to me. And he said, this thing with your hands around your neck, Devin, you've been doing that your entire life. And it was just like an arrow into my heart, this thing he was saying, because it was so true. And for me, coming out of that space with him, you know, I'd been to so much therapy and done so many different things, meditation, all sorts of stuff to try to I don't know, tried to scratch this itch of longing that I was experiencing. And never once had I had someone get that close to me and really say things like that to me. And and the result was feeler for the first time in, in years, really authentically feeling some of the stuff I had not felt. But I would say when I think about this field of work, that's kind of the first moment where I had been seeing other people doing it very curious, but it was the first moment where it really landed in me of, whoa, there's something to feeling. There's really something to what's going on here that's pretty magical. And these people charge no money. It's, it's what, just did, what did it do for you to be able to feel again? Or what do you think it has done for you? You know, I was so out of touch with myself. And I was so out of touch with what I really wanted. I hadn't had a girlfriend in maybe five years. I hadn't been in a relationship in five years. I hadn't made a new friend in five years. I was working for a high-tech startup in Seattle that I had no passion for and kind of would go in there just trying to get myself to be excited. And when I look back, I was so out of touch with my soul, really, and my heart. And when I started crying and the stuff started coming out of me, there was no question anymore about, you know, when I felt these things, it was like, this is as close as I get to something raw and authentic in me. And I mean, that process for me opened up this whole month of every day after that, at some point I would have these tears come and it would be these moments when I was having some real interaction with someone or when I would realize that I haven't written in years. I really care about writing and I would just be there at my computer and just kind of start crying and just start writing. And this was seven or eight years ago. I've gone through so much healing and processes and stuff like that since then. But most of it has been about what I would call kind of thawing out the numbness in my heart through experiences like that. And this is something you see on a society-wide basis in the Western world, right? Totally. And, you know, I was just doing some of this work in Egypt. I haven't encountered so many people in the world who really are in touch with their hearts. So there's the Western world, but I think it's even more global than the Western world that Somewhere along the line, there's been a messaging around feelings that they're not good, they're bad. Anger, sadness, fear, and in ways even joy are things to basically learn how to make small or hide or whatever. Not because they're inefficient. You could look at them that way, right? If you are in corporate mindset and you want complacent cogs to keep the machine running, Big feelings do not work very well <laughs> in a system like that that wants cogs. It, at all, yeah. A system like that or, you know, or school. It could blow up even. their whole operation. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at any of these fear, anger, sadness, and joy, there's so many reasons that most of us, you know, we could make a list. I have made a list and I'd invite your viewers or your listeners to make a list of like, basically, why is it not okay to feel anger? And the list is long. And it's like, this is the basic messaging is that there's something with feelings that 
they're problematic, they're immature, they're childish, they're a nuisance. And what I think that means is that we've lost a critical resource. Basically, human beings has forfeited a critical resource of clarity, of communication, of necessary energy and information. It just is living in our hearts, waiting to be unlocked, really. Hmm. So your work then, a big part of it is about being able to help people to feel again then, right? Yeah, as a starting point. Yeah. And then the other part is we distinguish in impossibility management between feelings and emotions. So emotions would be there's stuff from the past, incomplete things from the past, a feeling that you never really got to feel all the way or use the energy and information of all the way. And so that would be for healing. And then feelings are more present, real-time things that come from the moment, that come from who we are as adults. And these things are used for our lives. So a thing like anger at a small level, anger could be something like a boundary I have or a piece of clarity I want to offer about something. At a bigger level, anger could be something like, I am so angry that, I heard this from a guy not too long ago, so angry that I can't bring kids into the world because I don't believe they'll have a future. I'm so angry about that. This kind of anger has a sort of intelligence. You know, if he followed that further, it might lead to something like, if I were to have kids, I want them to grow up in a world where we are well on our way out of the climate change catastrophe. And so this would be a stand that he might take, an authentic stand, which would lead to some kind of practical action. So that's one of the other parts of possibility management. We call it the archetypal lineage. Who are you at a deep sort of soul level? What is your mission here? And your mission is optional. You can choose it or not choose it, but part of possibility management. And you could never know your mission if you couldn't feel it, right? Totally. This was the predicament I ran into in the corporate world and in college. It was like, how do I know what I care about? How do I know what I'm meant to do here? You know, none of the people in my university had done any sort of feelings work, so they couldn't point me in that direction. It was just kind of like, well, try things until you find something that you kind of like. But there's no real curriculum for how to feel your way into clarity. And is that what possibility management offers? Is an actual curriculum for that? A curriculum sounds formulaic, maybe a path. There are two layers of trainings for possibility management. One is called an expand the box. And this is one of the things I'm training to be a trainer for. Expand the box is a five-day immersive gathering, and they happen all over the world where people are introduced to new thought maps. So these are new maps for how to think about the world. We call it thoughtware. So stuff you use to think with. And then tons and tons of practices and experiments and exercises and initiations for bringing those maps from a mental body level into the deeper parts of you, the emotional body, the energetic body. So a lot of it is about communication practices and in opening up the heart practices and healing practices in relating and partly because it's so broad and it starts from this responsibility thing it touches on just about every facet you could think of of what it is to be a human being if we shift the definition of adulthood from someone over 18 someone who pays taxes and has a job and has a car and has kids to a definition of an adult that's someone who has their own authority, someone who can feel their feelings, feel, say, anger about their kids not being able to grow up in a world where they can eat fish out of the sea that doesn't have plastic in it, and that being their stand, and that they can move toward that. This is sort of a newer definition of an adult. I think adults are pretty scarce. I think for the most part, it's what's going on with me and my life? How can I take care of myself or the people closest to me? But the ability to take a big archetypal stand, which I think every human being 
has capacity for. There's simply no path in our schools, in our systems. What is for, a big archetypal that? stand? I want to make sure I understand what that is. Yeah, something like I take a stand that no child would ever be put on brain drugs. I take a stand that when young men are 18, they get access to an initiatory process. Or for me, it took me a long time to find this work. So I take a stand for it being easier for the next person to find this work than it was for me. And I do whatever I can to make that available. And so this is what I mean, that it's a stand that is not about my personal life. It's bigger than me. It's something that would influence the next person or impact the next person. It seems like committing to creating change in the world. Totally, totally. The other word that comes up to me is leader. You say there's not a lot of adults. There's not enough leaders either. Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by leader, I think, too. Well, I think one of the aspects would be taking a stand for something and saying, I believe this, and I'm going to do something about it. If you're really serious about changing the world, that change is going to be way more possible if you have a movement of people, not to put down what you can do in your own small way. But the real change is going to be when many people act together. Yes. And I think a leader recognizes that. And while it's not about them and their ego they recognize that there's a lot of people that can do good work and follow. And those people also need a leader too. Some people might argue with that and say, well, we don't really need a leader, but I don't know. <laughs> there was an old definition of leader in possibility management. It doesn't exist so much anymore, but I think it was still useful, which is the leader is simply the person who goes first, which means they're the person that goes into this unknown place first and then can turn around and hold space for the next people, the next people to unfold. And I'm with you. I mean, there's also this thing about having an ego or having parts of you that are wanting to be a leader for, let's say, kind of underworld purposes like power or like power over or a kind of safety because everyone's looking at you and agreeing with you. But on the way to the person trying to deliver whatever change they're trying to deliver, these things would get in the way of them being able to have that kind of bigger impact. If they're so adherent to power or hierarchy or whatever it is. And so this is also part of my interest in empowerment is that there is some like follower model, like a leader follower model. And then what about just empowering the crap out of everybody, like really finding out what is in you that you need to do here and how do we empower that? And it's, I don't know, sort of moving away from a leader follower model into something that's more round or circular. Where, yeah, I where find that a lot in my coaching. I find that most often people know what to do for their way to do it. Because everyone has their own way of taking action and going about their lives. They just don't feel empowered to go try that. And they don't feel <laughs> like they have a space when they encounter the challenges and the difficulties and something doesn't work right away and they have shame around that. And then that can go into a self-doubt spiral kind of thing. If you don't have someone to hold space for you and look at it and go, yeah, there was consequences for what you did. Maybe there's more learning to be done, but it doesn't mean what you did was wrong. doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't try it again or keep doing it and get better at it, you know. That's the holding space. That's being able to see through the stories. Yeah. And that's a different role necessarily than a leader. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, part of what you're talking about 
here too that I hear is something like team, even if it's just one other person holding space for you, not trying to do the thing alone like that. So we've talked about possibility management, but you work with a lot of other stuff. You just kind of briefly mentioned underworld work. That's something that right now you're working with. Yeah. I just will say briefly about Rage Club, because that's another thing I do. Rage Club would be one of these spaces that I hold, which is a space for people to authentically explore. And it's not about talking about rage, not about managing rage. It's really about allowing their anger to come out and discover both what's the healing I need around anger and also what is the clarity that my anger has to offer me. This would be one of the spaces I'm holding pretty consistently right now. Mm. And the, the other is this underworld stuff that we talked a little bit about. The but we beginning. didn't really say what it was. I mean, you kind well, of gave an example of it, but what is underworld work? So everybody has a part of them that, again, this kind of comes back to responsibility, but a part of them that does not want to take responsibility for say, the way their life is. If they're depressed or don't like who they are or they don't have enough money or whatever it is, that would not want to take any responsibility for that. And so that part would be probably very sophisticated in blaming other people or very sophisticated in finding reasons and ideas and a lifetime of why things are the way they are and none of it has to do with me. And in, in possibility management, we call this part the gremlin. The gremlin is this character, a part really, in a person. It would be the kind of king or queen of their personal underworld, their personal way of interacting irresponsibly with the world. It sounds like an evil genius. Yes. And in a way, it totally is a genius and it totally has access to evil. And in the most part, it's a lot more kind of not blasé, but it's less glamorous than that. There's like a, a daily thing of, you know, I smoke cigarettes on a daily basis, or I drink so much coffee that I can't feel on a daily basis, or I pick my nose and I flick it when I'm at a friend's house, or all these little tiny things. So it's like even these little weird nooks and crannies are, are also- You're making also me think of Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. Yes, I think that would be, I forget the name of the Schmeagol. Was that his name? The name oh, yeah. of the Hobbit? Well, that was the name before Gollum got a hold of him. Schmeagol is the good, kind part of him. So this is great. This would be, <laughs> Gollum would be like Schmeagol's gremlin. And we all have some part that is this. And so the underworld space called Own Your Underworld, and it's a, gremlin transformation space is a space where you know we meet for six weeks or something like that and we do these meetings online and through exercises and self-observation and practices people get to know really deeply and put on the table really deeply this part of themselves probably for most of them for the very first time in their lives and so I just want to give a quick example of what this can look like. I've been in a group of three men for um, a year or something like that. We meet every two weeks, and the thing that we do together is support each other in each other's growth. And something was happening where we just weren't meeting for a while, and there were a lot of great reasons for it. Reasons like I'm traveling. And one of us at some point said, there's something going on. I want to bring in a facilitator so we can find out. And so we were asking our questions in this group, what's really going on? And the question was really directed at our own gremlins. What would be going on that in this group I'm supposedly devoted to, I am not negotiating time changes. I'm not talking about the travel days, blah, 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 blah. And what each of us found th through just having a really skilled facilitator there was that we all had a kind of underworld reason for not allowing the group to be successful. And for me, what I discovered was, there's a part of me that 
is so devoted to the story that men cannot be connected, cannot really be committed to each other. That it's like, by not saying what I really wanted in the group, I was not creating what I really wanted in the group. And by doing that long enough, I gathered enough reason for me to no longer be really deeply invested. And as a result, these things that I could chalk up to just forgetting, I could see like there's really a part of me that in a way has been plotting how I can justify leaving this group and just say it's another group with men that didn't work. Ooh, this is very subtle and very profound. Yeah. So this is the kind of work that we do with people. And what I can say is what we're discovering over and over is just first that gremlin is everywhere for most people. It's all over their lives. And second, that starting to make this stuff conscious and do experiments or practices, that this part can actually transform from a sort of sabotaging part devoted to revenge or blame or being a victim or being a persecutor into a part that is indispensable for a person serving their destiny. So the same part is of that me, because it points the way to truth. That is totally a part of it. The same part of me that is totally devoted to sabotaging the group can see at a subtle level how another person is devoted to the same thing. And then I can tell them as a service to them, I could say, you know, I was just talking to you and you spent the whole conversation looking in every direction, but at me, what's really going on with that? And yeah, it's quite a skill to be able to truly call someone out, to really see what's hiding and name it and not from an ego place, but from Look, I understand this. I experience this and I can see it and I can feel it. Yeah. And what what do you think about that? <laughs> That's a call out that not just any practitioner can do. Totally. And the unconscious gremlin, same situation, person looking all over the place. If I'm not in touch with what my gremlin would be up to, which is also just ruining the possibility of intimacy, I might walk away from that conversation and think that person's just a jerk and forget them. They don't have it together. They don't have enough attention, whatever it is. But with an initiated gremlin with practice, and it's definitely something that can be trained and learned using the same part of me to cut through the noise and be ruthlessly present, ruthlessly, lovingly present with the other person. It's the same character moved into a conscious use. That's one of the things that we work with. That's great work, man. That must be exciting to do. Yeah, it's totally exciting. And, and crazy fulfilling, and I'm sure. And probably hard. <laughs> probably taking a lot of energy, I guess I would say. Yeah, I would say that it's incredibly rewarding to see someone shift from having no idea about this underworld stuff to being able to hold space for someone else who has no idea. I mean, just from doing their own work. And for me, you know, as an empowerment thing, it's my, like one of the most rewarding things is to see someone else start to be able to hold this kind of a space. I got to say, I just would find myself wondering, whoo, man, this work sounds like it takes so much energy and it would just drain me. I tried Rage Club like one session and then I was just like, I don't need any more things that drain me. But I could imagine there being an aspect of this work that you can get filled up too. And I guess I would just be curious, you're involved with this work all the time. So how do you maintain that balance of getting filled up and drained? And how can it be a stable thing where you have enough energy and it doesn't just suck you dry to do this work? I mean, for me, it's, ecstatic. You know, in these kinds of spaces, never do I experience myself so devoted to another human being. So, you know, these things I say about like, I want a world where people can feel, I don't know how to say it other than the uh, alignment with my word 
And with what I'm doing in real time with my physical body, with my hands, with my voice, it's incredibly ecstatic. Do you feel like when you're doing that, you're drawing on the energy of the whole world around you instead of just your own energy? Like, do you think that's part of what keeps you afloat? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's a real skill to learn about is, is drawing on the energy of not just Devin, but drawing on the energy of love as a principle or drawing on the energy of transformation or evolution of consciousness. Yeah, because I think one of the things that holds a lot of people back today, at least in our Western society, I certainly experienced this, is just feeling overwhelmed. Just like my little bit of energy and enthusiasm and love and whatever I can muster that I'm working with, because I got my whole life to deal with too, you know, and then you have something like climate change and an awareness of climate change coming in on you. Or what if the Russians start launching nuclear missiles at us? Just these things that it's like, unless you have a framework of it's not just my energy, it's all of the energy of the world. How could you see yourself as enough to engage with that without just being crushed? Especially you're going to take these archetypal stands, right? Yes, so right. what kind of energy does that take to be able to do that, you know, and not feel like you're going to be drained or crushed or whatever? Because that's my fear is like, oh, my God, I'm going to get drained or stomped out or crushed or, you know, just totally despair or all that stuff. I mean, I wonder if that's part of that underworld work you're talking about. Well, you know, it's something, yeah, I'm glad you bring this up. It's something that I have had a lot of questions about myself because my experience, especially doing things like working corporate job and looking at other people who are in my department or around my department is that there's like a kind of tiredness and exhaustion and sort of being worn really sinned. And I think for me, one of the discoveries about the feelings work is that I had no place to really, I, what I had space for in my life was moving faster. It's like, I got to move fast. If I can finally catch up on this huge to-do list, then I can get to this and get to that. But nowhere in my life was there a built-in space where it was just, go ahead, feel, feel that. And what, what's the next thing? It seems like feelings take time to feel, at least at first. Yeah. Like if you're in a rush, good luck feeling your feelings. How do you get in touch with your feelings in it <laughs> if it's got to be so quick? Yeah, you know, there's this group on Telegram, which is called the Emotional Healing Process Group. It's like got 400 people. And basically, I wanted to learn how to feel better, better than I could. And I used to go into this group and just set up these 15-minute calls or 20-minute calls with someone. And I would just practice feeling for no reason for 10 minutes. Well, they sat there and maybe just repeated back to me what I said when I'd be like, okay, I'm really pissed off that, that Brian didn't take out the garbage. I'm really angry about that because he said he would. And they just say, you're angry because Brian didn't take out the garbage. I say, yeah, because God, I just thought we were closer. I, I asked him to do this and I thought we were closer and I feel sad that I feel sad that we don't have that kind of relating that I thought we had. And then they repeat that back. And then maybe my fear comes up a little bit. And like, in fact, I don't know if I have that relating with anybody. And I really want that in my life. And I would do this for whatever, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And then the other person would go and I'd do it for them. For me, I think 10 minutes is not such a huge demand on time. And the reward or payoff for me for that little time was huge. Yeah, I think what I'm getting from this is it doesn't have to be complicated. Like if it's simple, you can do it if it's simple. You know? Yeah, and within reach, like it's just learning how to feel. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I I think we could continue to dig and talk about this for a while. But I also want to get to the vision portion of our call, which is... What do you think it would look like for this work that you're doing to be amplified? If you had a genie with a magic lamp and it gave you three wishes and one of your wishes was, I wish that this thing becomes a really powerful movement 
and has the resources to really change the world a lot and help a lot of people. Mm. What does the next level of this look like from your perspective? And, you know, I think the way I asked that question was a little analytical. I just want you to come from a place of what your heart wants for this movement. What would that look like? What is that ecstatic fulfillment of the potential of this work look like? Mm. Well, you know, I have some sort of practical answers that I would give, but maybe I'll get to those in a second. The biggest thing would be that human beings have an experience of their heart. Really, all human beings have a real experience of their heart and real initiation into mad, sad, glad, and scared. A lot of the work I end up doing is how to get people to feel those things. When we're kids, you know, this is where we learn those things. I mean, you hear the authenticity in a baby scream, just so clear, such a direct connection to the heart and the mouth. And so this for me would be a big part of a world where everyone knows how to feel. And then from that place, they can create, they can be in touch enough with what they are here to do, like their destiny and their resources to create that. And by resources, I'm talking about inner resources. So if you were picturing it, would it be like you're walking down the streets of Seattle and where right now you see people busy on their cell phones, stressed out, frustrated, whatever, venting, tired and not wanting to go to work, you know, the typical stuff you see walking down a city street. Like you would walk down the city street and you would hear and you would see the feelings of passionate people that are engaged with their feelings and maybe some would be passionately arguing but you knew these are people that knew how to argue and express their feelings safely but authentically to each other and other people are in love with each other but you could just feel the palpable emotion and life force of the people in the city i don't know this is how i'm picturing so i'm just wondering how do you picture the experience and the vision of what that would be as you walk down the city streets in any city in the world so yes to everything you just said and then added to that would be something like the question of is this the job for me do i like this job people would not work jobs anymore they would be their destiny in action in the world they would know with clarity what their stand is and the, the community would be as devoted, as committed to that person and their stand as they were to themselves and to creating that thing in the world. I mean, so much of my life in the corporate world was, do you like your job? It's tolerable. I met a lot of people who were tolerating their job, including myself, who it's like there seems to be no other way other than basically working a job that I can tolerate for paycheck and insurance and all this stuff. Yeah. And that's the norm. In my experience, that's pretty normal. That's insane. But what's the opposite of that? That's what I'm getting at. Is it then that in the same way that we have big concerts of people that come to experience music now, that in the new world, there are big conferences that's like, what's the conference happening this month of these people that are committed to taking a stand for this? I don't know. I'm just spitballing about what does okay. that look like? So I'm at Findhorn right now. Findhorn is a eco-village in Scotland that was founded in the 1960s, and it's still going and, and thriving, really. And it came together when three people uh, collected in this space following some sort of intuition, some sort of inner guidance. And they were wondering, what do we do with this? And they just kept following it. And at some point, one of the women, Eileen Caddy, and another woman, Dorothy, they started hearing this stuff from the plants around them, saying, basically, plant me like this. Create this. Do this with the plants. Move the soil here. Move the water here. Do this. And within a short amount of time, they had this impossible garden growing in these dunes in northern Scotland. And by impossible, I'm talking like 
ecologists have tried to make sense of the fact that they were growing 40 pound cabbages here out of sand dunes. It makes no sense at all. So these people were following a resource that's completely different than the resources we learn about in school or in college. They were in touch with something way beyond that. What I would envision is that human beings get that they have access to abundant resources that have much better clarity about who and what they are. And pretty soon there are a hundred people and mm. 200 people. And these people are not coming from worries about scarcity. These people are not coming from how do I make my next paycheck? They were tuned into something so different than those concerns. I think that is within the realm of human potential. So it sounds like you could see viscerally cities designed with inspiration and listening to the natural environment with beauty, these type of values, as opposed to just efficiency and manipulation. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any more to say? Okay. <laughs> this thing about having a feelings space in school where children just got to practice feeling would be amazing or spaces where it's really about how to relate, how to negotiate with each other, how to negotiate intimacy with each other. Stuff that I spend quite a bit of time talking about, but also learning myself. And it's like these sort of soft skills that could have been transmitted at the same time that I was spending so much time trying to learn algebra and calculus and world history and stuff if other parts of the human being other than the mind are actually emphasized in education, this would be a part of it for me. This would be mm -hmm. a part of a future, the future, what could be possible in our world. Cool. Yeah. So last part of this interview is to ask you, what could support look like that would help this to manifest faster? How could people support you or possibility management to help that amplify, to help that magnify, help it move along faster? I think the first thing would be doing some of this work. So it's not just, this sounds like great work for other people to do, but finding out what it's like to turn one's own heart on. And you could do that in a rage club. And then this work just needs space holders. There's a lot of people out there who've never, ever felt their anger, haven't cried a tear in like 10, 15 years. And learning how to hold space for that would start to actually spread the essence of this work far and wide. And so for me, I'm just doing whatever I can to get this work to as many people as I can. And there are other people doing that. And I think it would just be more people who hear this podcast and have interest in this work, just start following the path. Just start learning how to feel, learning to question, am I really just a mind or is there an energetic body here and a heart here and other stuff to play with? So how do they get in touch with you? How do they find out about possibility management? These various things we've been talking about, is there an email address, a website? I've got something for you. So. There's my website, which is devingleason. And that's, should I spell my name? I think that'd be helpful, maybe. Yes, please. Yeah. So it's D E V I N G L E E S O N dot my strikingly. That's M Y S T R I K I N G L Y dot com. That would be my personal website. There's a way to get in touch with me there. And then for possibility management, there's an enormous online, offline, massively multiplayer transformation game that's free to play online. And it's pretty big. It's called Start Over. And one place to start with that would just be Start Over. And that's one word, dot XYZ. This is kind of the entrance portal to this really enormous, ever-growing 
game that you can start to play, learn about, experiment with stuff in your own life. So I would say that would be a, another place to and start. And what kind of a game is it? Let me see if I can, uh, I'll try to say all the words in order, but it's a massively multiplayer, online, offline, thoughtware upgrade, transformational development game. So all those things. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So those would be two of the main, uh, one for getting in touch with me and the other for really starting to explore this pretty massive world of possibility management. That's great. Devin, this has been wonderful, man. We went deep. We went deep and far and wide. <laughs> I always like to open up a space at the end of the interview, though, too, to just say, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to share? Yes. Thank you for asking. Just briefly, I'm currently in Scotland, but I and my partner and kind of a caravan of people are coming to the United States for three months. So this would be from September to the end of November. We're going basically from Maine to New York, to Seattle, to San Francisco, to Boulder, Colorado, to Miami, just delivering work all over the place. So doing talks, doing expand the boxes and possibility labs, which are kind of a separate thing. And if anyone is interested, you just reach out to me. I can let you know more. And they do that by going to the website. Do you do any social media at all? I do some Facebook, yeah. Could they follow you on Facebook and then the events would just pop up into their feed? or That would work. It would just be following me or adding me as a friend on Facebook. If someone sends me a friend request with like some little message, I typically respond quickly. Well, once again, thank you, Devin. I just want to acknowledge you for the courage that you display and the care for not just yourself, but for the world and for the future generations, just for humanity actually helping itself out, you know, instead of just being an individual me, me world, you really seem to have purpose and love and motivation and goodwill. And I want to live in a world with those kind of people. And thankfully, <laughs> there's one. No, I know there's more than one, but you're a great one. So thank you for the time. Thank you for your heart and your contribution today. Yeah. Thanks, Galen. I really appreciate that you are taking a stand for creating this podcast and putting people in touch with bigger audiences. Yeah, thank you for having me on and doing this. Mm -hmm.